This is the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today Attorney John J. Clarity III from the law firm of Pierce, Davis, and Peritano, a litigation and trial firm with offices in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. John is a partner with the firm. He represents municipalities, schools, and school districts in defense of negligence, premises liability, negligence security, civil rights, and discrimination. John also represents higher education institutions in tort, contract, and employment claims. John has defended numerous schools and officials in bullying cases, including a successful appeal to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And John, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you. Today, John is going to provide us with an update on school bullying claims. Bullying and cyberbullying continue to dominate headlines with several high-profile cases. While schools and institutions have made efforts to address bullying, families continue to hold school districts and officials accountable for failure to prevent bullying, leading to school bullying claims. Lawsuits range from wrongful death to civil rights and due process violations. Today's topic is the defense in schools and claims of failure to prevent bullying. And John, before we get into the claims details, can you provide for us a legal definition of what is bullying? Uh, certainly. There's, there's actually no uniform federal definition of bullying. Uh, in Mainly in all the 50 states, they've adopted some form of anti-bullying legislation, which would specifically uh, define what they mean by bullying and harassment. Um, you know, most are similar. Local educators and lawyers, you need to look at the local statutes and regulations in your own jurisdictions. But generally, you know, they look at aggressive behavior or intentional harm directed towards another student that's repeated over time. And the courts also look at whether there's an imbalance of power between the aggressors and the targets. And, and it can be very, you know, cover a wide variety of conduct, as you can imagine. It can be uh, written, verbal, electronic physical acts, uh, something that's directed at a victim and causes physical or emotional harm, or even just the threat of uh, physical or emotional harm, which rises to the level of a hostile environment. And what claims are schools facing in the bullying area, John? Um, Typically, the the lawsuits that we're seeing and the claims that we're seeing involve uh, peer-to-peer bullying, a school child being bullied by other students either on or off campus, which the, uh, the, the student or the parents claim the school administration was non-responsive to or did not adequately respond. And the bullying can be, you know, verbal or accompanied by physical contact or assaults, or even we've had cases of uh, non-consensual sexual conduct on, on uh, students. Uh, there also are claims of bullying by cyberbullying via social media, which we can, you know, discuss in more detail in a few minutes. John, is liability different for private and for public schools? Yes, there's a big distinction uh, here in the civil rights uh, arena between private and public schools. Uh, The civil rights law under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, um, which provides a a mechanism for liability if if an actor violates someone's constitutional rights. Uh, Section 1983, however, only applies to state actors. Uh, and therefore would only apply to public schools. So private schools ordinarily would not be liable under uh, for civil rights violations under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. That being said, however, the uh, 
federal anti-discrimination laws apply uh, more broadly than Section 1983, and they would apply to any uh, entities receiving federal funding, and so that private schools can be held liable under federal anti-discrimination laws such as Title IX, and uh, obviously the vast majority of private schools receive some sort of federal funding, so they'd have exposure there. John, what legal theories are plaintiffs pursuing in school bullying cases? So we see a whole, you know, array of different types of legal theories brought, and most most litigants try to, 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 you know, do the shotgun approach and bring as many claims as possible. There's claims under uh, Section 1983 for... Uh, civil rights violations of substantive due process violations or equal protection. There's the statutory discrimination claims under Title VI or Title IX, uh, alleging you know, sex discrimination. Uh, there's claims brought under the Individuals with Disability and Education Act, the IDEA, and those involve special education students and the obligation to provide a free and appropriate public education. There's disability discrimination claims brought under Section 504, there can be state law civil rights claims. Massachusetts, where I practice, has a wide variety of uh, statutes protecting or pro- prohibiting discrimination in education or uh, in public accommodations that might come into play. The, the state laws uh, for bill- bullying prevention may or may not be actionable in themselves. Massachusetts uh, law does not create a right of action, but other states may uh, create a cause of action for violating the, the failure the bullying prevention laws. And then, of course. There's the negligent claims like negligent supervision, negligent hiring, and negligent infliction of emotional distress. John, are there additional concerns with special education students or disabled students? Uh, certainly. The, the, the special education students uh, you know, are subject to the IDEA uh, regulations, and uh, we find, in Massachusetts law especially, requires this, that if there is a, a determination when doing the individualized education plan, the IEP, that's required under the IDEA, uh, if that identifies a student as being vulnerable to bullying, then the IEP has really got to take steps to address uh, how you're going to avoid and respond to bullying for this particular student. And then on the flip side, if the, the bullying uh, students, the, the uh, perpetrators are, are special education students, then the IDEA's protections for uh, disciplining students is a whole array of procedural protections uh, set forth in the federal law that, that governs whether you can discipline a special education student and how that discipline can be enforced also comes into play. And how are bullying claims interrelated with schools' obligations to prevent sex-based discrimination? So this is where currently I'm seeing a lot of, uh, of bullying claims have the um, interplay with the sex discrimination laws, and uh, mainly under Title IX, which prohibits uh, discrimination in education on the basis of sex. Uh, the Supreme Court, as, as you may know, is uh, found an implied private right of action under Title IX, so, so students can sue if they are subject to a sexually hostile uh, school environment under Title IX. Um, and the standard of liability there is whether the, the school is deliberately indifferent toward known acts of harassment occurring in programs or activities. So if there's ever uh, bullying that's tinged with any kind of sexual hostility, such as you know, homophobic names or slurs being uh, accused between uh, the students, that you know, usually uh, gives rise to a Title IX claim. And the significance of that is, ordinarily, if there is no sexually tinged conduct, and the students are trying to bring a, a civil rights claim under 
say, the due process clause of the the Constitution, they're going to fall short because the case law is pretty well established that the government doesn't have an obligation to protect an individual from private violence or harassment under the due process clause. Um, you know, there's a number of exceptions to that, but basically, uh, we've successfully argued in this reported cases that the failure to prevent bullying uh, cannot give rise to a substantive due process violation under the Constitution. So what we find is that litigants will then, you know, seize upon any uh, sexually harassing type remarks that are part of the bullying to bring a Title IX claim because they know if they try to pursue a substantive due process claim, it's going to fall short. John, how can schools defend themselves in bullying cases? So the best response or the best, you know, defense to bullying uh, claims is, is, is prevention. So you, if you have your workforce trained to detect and prevent bullying, it's going to go far in, in making sure the claims uh, never came forward. And then documenting whatever bullying prevention efforts you take, including, including you know, documenting the training of your staff and how to detect and respond to bullying, uh, education of the students in uh, preventing bullying, and whatever investigations are conducted should be well documented as, as well. Is there any distinction from claims that school officials or employees engaged in uh, conf- uh, regards to bullying? Yeah, so what we've been talking about so far is the peer-to-peer bullying, uh, different uh, level of proof uh, uh, for that type of bullying as opposed to if the teacher or staff member is, is supposedly being uh, sexually hostile or harassing students and there's more likelihood to be a uh, finding of direct liability or vicarious liability for the school if the conduct uh, at issue is being done by their own teaching staff. What are you seeing uh, as far as bullying claims on the federal or state levels? Most of the claims we see are brought in the state courts, but uh, if there are federal claims included in the complaint, we routinely remove them to federal court. Uh, we find that the federal jurists are much more familiar with the, uh, the civil rights laws and the case law and statutes, and much more willing than state jurists to uh, rule on dispositive motions. Now, cyberbullying is all over the news these days. Is that different than the other types of bullying? Uh, not really. Well, it's just a different format for bullying. The uh, regulations in the case law usually recognize that bullying can take place either directly uh, face-to-face or by virtue of uh, this social media or electronic bullying and, and, and prohibit it there as well. The big issue that we find is uh, is how can a uh, litigant prove liability for school for conduct that takes place off campus or in the student's own room if they're if they're doing this on social media, uh, and so the courts are going to look to whether uh, the computers were accessed on campus or the uh, social media postings became so widely known that they disrupted the educational opportunities of the student in the classroom. And, John, how does hazing come into play? So hazing is, is where there's uh, bullying or harassment in the initiation into a student organization, uh, like being on a football team or being on some other kind of sport. And certainly that falls within the definition of bullying. And uh, where we see this become problematic is uh, uh, we've had cases where there's a football camp even taking place in another state where hazing occurs and the school can be held liable or called to task if they don't prevent bullying that takes place away from from the campus. And how are schools at risk in bullying cases? So the main uh, risks that occur are the schools are dismissive of the claims of bullying or non-responsive to the bullying, or they don't document the efforts uh, to address the bullying or preserve records. 
failing to communicate with parents or students about the efforts that they're taking can can be problematic. Uh, you know, in other words, they're disciplining a student and addressing the bullying, but the the, the victim bullying is not aware of that. Uh, that's a problem, of course. Uh, there's federal and state laws regulating the disclosure of student discipline and student records under FERPA and elsewhere, so you got to be careful about that. Um, and one other type of issue or other types of issues we see is when bullying takes place in the past, it's addressed, and then the, the students uh, are promoted to another grade, and the students are put back in the same arena or same classroom, and the school doesn't have a continuity of treatment be, or protection for the victim of the bullying. And what can schools do to protect students and also reduce their liability risk? So the best practices are to have an anti-bullying plan in place uh, and uh, to make sure that is known to all the staff through professional development uh, training and updates and to require reporting uh, by all school employees, including non-teaching staff, of any suspected bullying and then to investigate and discipline. And when you do investigate, you've got to document your investigation, written reports, and take appropriate disciplinary action. You've got to follow that up, like I talked about earlier, with notifications of the, the parents uh, and the guardians of both the perpetrator and the victim. Uh, and then uh, make sure you, know, you have policies in place for other things, like Internet safety and that type of thing. And what trends do you see in the volume of bullying claims being brought against schools? So anecdotally, in our experience, we, we saw a real uh, large increase in the bullying back when these high-profile cases first came uh, on the scene and uh, the bullying legislation uh, came into play. But since then, it's, it's tapered off, and I think that's really attributed to the schools themselves uh, being more proactive, uh, putting in place these bullying policies and enforcing them uh, with written investigations and doing their diligence. So I think there's been fewer and fewer uh, bullying cases, although they still come out with some regularity over time. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay. Thank you, John. That was John J. Clarity III from the law firm of Pierce, Davis, and Peritano, a litigation and trial firm with offices in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And special thanks to today's producer, Frank Vowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to iTunes or our webpage, www.ambest.com. Dot com slash claims resource. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professionals and Claims Resource is the top website for locating qualified professionals and need-to-know insurance information for the claims market. Brought to you by AMBest, the world leader in insurance industry information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.